Welcome to the Running After 40 podcast, the podcast about all things related to running at 40 and beyond, produced by www.runningwithgrit.com. We help you stay physically healthy and emotionally strong at any running pace. I'm Sarah, your host, and a wife, a full-time working mom with three kids, three dogs, and a lifetime passion for running. Whether you are a veteran runner looking to maximize your times as a master runner or a brand new jogger starting in your 40s, 50s, or any age, this podcast will be there for your journey. I want to share stories, secrets, and strategies for success. This includes mistakes and lessons learned, all related to running past age 40. Let's hit the play button together and hit the roads as runners with grit after age 40. Hey everyone, welcome to the Running After Age 40 podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm your host. And today we're gonna do something a little different than our previous real running episodes. So I'm going to give you a fall runner's research roundup. And what I'm gonna do is just give you a quick overview of scientific publications related to running that were published between late August and early October of 2021. So what I'm not going to be covering are any kind of animal studies or basic science studies. What I am going to be covering are anything that I deemed relevant to runners over age 40. And I do want to point out that there's no medical advice in this podcast, uh, and you need to seek a doctor's opinion if you have an injury or any kind of running-related problem. So with that, let's get going. And the first one is the one that I was most interested and excited about, and it's from Sports Medicine at the early, in early September of 2021. And it's entitled, The Influence of Running on Lower Limb Cartilage, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And meta-analysis is just a big word for taking several studies over a similar topic and trying to draw conclusions from them from doing a variety of different statistical tests. So they actually did look at 43 different scientific studies that have assessed cartilage and running. So they looked at these different studies all kind of looked at similar things, though. They all looked at cartilage lesions, uh, volume, thickness, and and then some different kind of MRI type uh, data that I won't go in, uh, go into today. But I think the important thing to point out is we all think, you know, that maybe running can be harmful to the knee cartilage. But what this found was that the changes to the lower limb cartilage following a run are actually transient. So what does that mean? It means you go for a run and what these authors are reporting was that the changes in cartilage morphology and composition were actually temporary. So they were more likely on that MRI to show, be reflective of like natural fluid dynamics. And they didn't persist and were generally not significant when you looked at the huge aggregate of information. So what does this mean? This means, this is pretty positive. It means that most likely our cartilage can recover well from a single running bout and that possibly it can adapt well to repeated exposure. And that age old thing that, you know, running is bad for the knees is just not true. So uh, obviously we always need more data and we need future trials to to look at, you know, specific effects. Uh, But this in general is good news for those of us who want to keep running. 
So that was our first one. Let's move on since we're uh, still in the COVID-19 pandemic per se. Uh, This is of interest. It's from the Journal of Sports Medicine in October of 2021. And it was looking at training for marathons during a marathon pandemic. Uh, The title is The Effective COVID-19 Pandemic on Fitness Among High-Level Non-Elite Runners. So they have a study. It's called the Master's Athletic Study, and it's a survey. So it's looking at high level, usually marathoners, but non-elite runners. Uh, So they survey these folks and they see, you know, what's your level of fitness like now? compared to before the pandemic. Uh, So they've got a little less than 200 runners that have completed the survey. uh, And about 50% said basically their fitness was unchanged. And that does make sense if you think, you know, you were still able to run during the pandemic. You know, running doesn't require going to a gym, you know, and mostly, especially in the United States, you were still able to go outside. Uh, About 25% reported they were less fit after the pandemic or, you know, kind of post-pandemic, and then 30% reported they were more fit. The point I wanted to point out is that they reported 13.8% of the runners actually had a prior diagnosis with COVID-19. And of that, about 14%, uh, none of them had a relationship with that COVID-19 diagnosis and their level of fitness. So that's positive news. Hopefully, you know, COVID-19 isn't affecting, you know, long-term fitness for most people. So that's what this study was showing. All right, moving on to an update on minimalist running shoes. And I just want to point out, if you'd like a copy of this literature search, you can just email me at runningwithgrit at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to include you and provide this update. Uh, So this is just a quick article comparing minimalist running shoes to conventional running shoes. And this was interesting to me. I, you know, I remember getting the Newtons and then having the, uh, what were they, Vibrams and running barefoot in my grass in my backyard. You know, I've always been trying to find the most efficient way to run. Uh, So what they were showing here is that for heavier runners, especially that those that were running in minimal shoes had an increased risk of injuries in the knee, the shin, the calf, and the ankle. Uh, And that overall, they were suggesting limiting running in the minimalist shoes to about one-third of the training time, specifically when you really want to have optimal fitness. So maybe those times where you're doing a speed workout or, uh, or even in a race. So those are the times to limit that. All right, moving on to an article from early October in Sports Medicine. Uh, This is a fun one, guys. So this is the benefits of daytime napping opportunity on physical and cognitive performances in physically active participants, a systematic review. So just like earlier, we talked about a systematic review. Uh, This one took into account 14 what they call strong quality studies and four moderate quality studies. And these were all uh, done from Europe. uh, And they were 158 physically active individuals and 168 athletes that were analyzed. Uh, So I think in the United States, you know, we don't usually consider napping part of an adult's 
uh, I guess, lifestyle, but that's not necessarily the case overseas. Uh, so most of these studies actually confirmed the benefits of napping. Uh, and when I say benefits, what they reported are is an increase in short-term physical performance, uh, an overall improvement in endurance performance, and then also in specific skills performance. There were two studies that didn't show an improvement uh, associated with napping. Uh, but most did. And then I think the the other thing that jumped out at me, I guess, is that they suggested 90 minutes as the optimal nap duration, which I thought was quite long. Uh, so just something to keep in mind. You know, I think if you're able to, I guess, squeak in a five minute nap, it'd be nice, right? I'm not a napper myself, but maybe I need to be become one. So uh, interesting article. All right, the next one is from the Medical Science Sports Exercise Journal, again from early October, and this is looking at the effects of marathon running on cognition and retinal vascularization, a longitudinal observational study. Uh, so we know that physical activity has good effects on our cardiovascular system and also our neurocognitive system. And if you've listened to other episodes of this podcast, a lot of the runners have just said, you know, they run because it provides them med- like mental clarity or just they feel good running. Uh, so this study is looking at, you know, why exactly is that? Uh, so these are marathon runners that are age and sex matched to sedentary controls. And then they're looking at the differences in uh, cognitive improvements. So what they found was that the chronic exercise, just like we would expect, does prime the central nervous system. Uh, and the acute intensive bouts of exercise are very good for us. And they basically, you know, have a neuroplastic effect that is positive for us. So again, all positive things regarding exercise, like you would expect. Uh, the next one is use of monitoring technology and injuring injury incidents among recreational runners, a cross-sectional studies study, and this is from the BMC Sports Science Medi- Medicine Rehabilitation. Sorry, some of these are just a mouthful. Uh, so this is out of the UK. Uh, we know uh, we're all using, I'm looking at my watch right now, and we're all using these monitoring devices, right? I have an Apple Watch. A lot of my friends run with Garmin's, uh, whatever your favorite one is, but we've all got these GPS watches. So they were trying to figure out if these had any kind of effect on running-related injury. Uh, So they looked at runners that participated in three different 5Ks in Ireland, and they did a survey with them. Uh, So the the people in this study were about the same age as me, about 45, uh, and they generally ran a few days a week. Uh, The people that had uh, GPS watches, which was most of the people, uh, generally ran more. Uh, more frequently and uh, had run for more years of their life than those who didn't use monitoring technology. And I mean, that just kind of makes sense, right? Uh, But what I wanted to point out was 40.6% of the participants in the survey reported being injured in the last 12 months or year. Uh, And they did not find a relationship between injury and their uh, monitoring technology device. So I guess what what I'm trying to say is wearing, you know, training with a GPS device did not increase or decrease the risk of running related injury. So I think more data needs to come out on that. Hopefully, you know, in the future, it's going to help us keep training smarter, right? 
Okay, supplement intake in half marathon, ultra marathon, and 10K runners results from the NERMI study, which was from the Journal of International Society Sports Nutrition in September. Uh, This one is a quick review. You know, I really liked their introduction because it's talking about the nutritional challenges we face as endurance runners and how we can optimally, you know, get what we need uh, in our food, right? Uh, But sometimes we do have to use supplements. So what this is, is showing basically how many people currently use supplements. They surveyed 317 runners, uh, about half of them we're currently taking some type of supplement, and the most common type was a vitamin, uh, and then the second type was minerals. And they didn't go into depth of any kind of natural type supplements from that. Um, this was just a basic thing about kind of vitamins and supplements overall. So, I mean, one out of two uh, marathon distance runners, or a little bit, you know, maybe 10k runners that went down to that. You know, that makes sense to me. That's about 50% would take. So, I think now what we need to figure out is, you know, does that help, right? And why were they taking it? And when, what would be the parameters that we need to take it? Those are all my questions. Uh, the next one is interactions between running volume and running pace on injury occurrence in recreational runners, a secondary analysis. And this was out of the Journal of Athletic Training. So they actually looked at just under 600 rec runners, and they were all injury-free at the beginning, and then they started running. So they tried to track, or they did track, uh, the rate of uh, running-related injury, and they also controlled for all kinds of different factors to try to figure out what was related to that injury. What I'll tell you is the key findings, which is what wasn't a contributor to injury. And that was what we always expect. So we've all probably heard that 10% is kind of the golden rule in increasing your running volume. You know, you don't want to increase more than 10% uh, and you don't want to increase your pace too much or else you'll be more at risk for injury. This study showed the opposite of that. Uh, again, this wasn't, uh, this isn't huge. It's 586 runners. Um, so obviously it's just a, a small um, snip, snippet of data, but it is something to show that we need to look at it into a little further. Um, a follow-up to this, very, very similar topic. I guess it's the same topic. Uh, this is one is a systemic review, though, a systematic review. So it's looking at, again, the association between running injuries and training parameters. And instead of just an individual study, that other one had the 586 runners. This one actually had 23,447 runners uh, from 36 different publications. So just some interesting findings from this one. Uh, Overall, about a quarter of those runners sustained some type of running-related injury. Uh, The incidents ranged from about 15% in novice runners all the way up to about 62% or two-thirds in competitive runners. Uh, The most frequent parts of the body that were injured are what you would expect. It's about a quarter the uh, the knee, about a quarter the foot or ankle, and then a quarter the lower leg, and then a hodgepodge in between. But what I guess the take-home message here is of the 36 articles, none there, there's no like definitive conclusion. A lot of differences about whether or not distance mattered, duration mattered, frequency, intensity, uh, specific changes in training. You know, 
none of those rang out in all the publications as, okay, this is really increasing the risk of running-related injury. So I guess my take-home message, and theirs as well, is we really need to look at like the psychosocial effects, the lifestyle effects, the recovery. What are people doing for recovery uh, and injury prevention? And I think that's probably going to tell us more of a story than just, uh, you know, specifically training volume and uh, intensity. So that's the take home with that one. Uh, The last one that I'm going to go over is uh, one that's looking at age-related declines in lower limb muscle function. Uh, It's it's entitled that are similar in power and endurance activities of both sexes, a longitudinal study of master athletes. I included this one just because they were comparing those that were more power athletes to endurance master athletes. And they were looking at that lower limb uh, muscle function and strength. And those that were power athletes had a main maintenance of their lower limb muscle function over time. Whereas those that were more endurance based started to, you know, there's, there's was lowering off. We were, those of us that were the endurance, that would be me. You know, we were having reductions. I wasn't part of the study, but I'm just saying I was having a reduction in my lower limb muscle function. So I think this is just another reminder that um, the different kinds of activities that we need to do as we get older to preserve our muscle function um, does change. So with that, that is my summary of the different scientific publications related to running from late August to early October. Uh, I ask you to please give us a rating on iTunes and share with your running friends if you do so wish. And uh, please check out our website, www.runningwithgrit.com for more information about running after age 40. And finally, we are still actively interviewing runners after 40. It's really fun and exciting to share real stories of runners just getting out there and getting it done. So if you do have any recommendations or you want to be on the podcast, please just send me an email at runningwithgrit at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Running After Age 40 podcast. If you like the show, please be sure to rate and give us a like in iTunes. Also check out our website, www.runningwithgrit.com for all things related to running over the age of 40. We have a special gift guide up for the holidays on the site designed to share stocking stuffer ideas and gifts for runners at pretty much every price. Thanks for listening.